Hey my friend, this is Joe Bakmotsky. I'm a cancer survivor myself. I'm also the author of Simplify Cancer and the host of this podcast. So welcome to this episode. I'm just so excited to have you here to share with you, you know, a great conversation with Daryl Mitteldorf who runs MailCare, an organization that supports men who are dealing with cancer. And Daryl does some incredible work helping people in particular in this crazy time that we live in. And Daryl really gives us an insider's view of what the situation is really like with the pandemic as it's happening in New York City, as it's happening in the United States, and what might be the profound impact of that moving forward. You know, Daryl is a great thinker, he's, he's just a beautiful human being, so I can't wait for you to hear this. Well, Daryl, I've been really looking forward to talking to you, so great seeing you. And Daryl, first, I just want to say that I know that you guys have been really hit hard with, with the pandemic like in New York. So when did you really have a sense that things were really starting to go wrong? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Thanks for asking. Because it is genuinely a different world here now. We all started talking about it in January, just because of the news. I probably bored my wife about it for at least half a half a month. You know, her saying it's in China, no worries, and I'm thinking, no, <laughs> these things fly on airplanes just like people. So it'll be here soon. But uh, I think uh, February was sort of mid-February, sort of uh, a bad start where, um, I mean, I actually got sick. Uh, my wife and my son soon followed. We don't know whether we had COVID or not because uh, the testing wasn't available at that time here in the States. So, But a number of people were getting sick in mid to late February, and everyone was basically saying it's just a bad cold or the flu, but it turned out not to be. Uh, we shut down our prostate cancer support group uh, network throughout the United States. Uh, we have 82 locations in the United States. Uh, we started shutting those down on February 26th and completed the process on March 6th. You know, we've been aware of uh, a deadly problem amongst us for quite a while now, for at least two and a half months now. It doesn't get any easier in thinking about it. It actually gets scarier because, uh, you know, the, every day confirms that it's not going away on its own, uh, that whatever we're doing may or may not be working, but certainly isn't working as quickly or as durably or as nicely as we'd like it to be. Yeah, I mean, we're start, I think everyone in the city here in New York is particularly on edge because we're the epicenter, which is, not, you know, I mean, we've always thought of ourselves that way, but in a more arrogant and conceited way around arts and industry and finance and this and that. Now we're the epicenter of uh, death. And, you know, it's not a cool thing. No, absolutely not. And, you know, for me also, I think this whole thing began with, uh, you know, when I went to actually to my oncologist for a checkup in January, because he just landed in, uh, you know, on his flight from the States flying through flying through China. And he was just saying to me how everyone was running around wearing masks. And he told me about, you know, the virus and the rate of replication and what that what that might mean. And that's when I started to go, oh, wow, like I better keep 
an eye on this. So it's, uh, and it was crazy to see how things started to unfold so quickly. Did you notice that at all? That things uh, happened really quickly where, where you, like over in New York where you are? Yes. Uh, within two or three weeks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was like a bad movie. And, you know, I was watching a TV series uh, uh, on Henry V, uh, or Henry IV, one of the Henrys of Kings of England, where they suffered a plague called the Sweats, uh, you know, some mysterious flu-like kind of thing that was killing people. And, they, you know, people would sweat, and within an hour or two, they'd be dead. And I was thinking, holy, this is exactly what's going on outside the apartment. You know, I mean, it was like this and that same thing, you know. And, yeah, it, was, it wasn't it was uh, good. And, um, you know, as rapidly as it came upon us, there were equally rapid people in denial or saying, you know, right-wing-ish kind of things, like it's conspiracy against our current government, it's this or that. It's only a, a, a f the flu. It's a cheap trick to, you know, for the government to control people with in underserved communities. Because you know, by the way, the, 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 this as bad as it is, uh, it's two or three times as bad for men and women from African descent, African Americans, for people of Latino heritage, for poor people, because uh, poor people are living closer to each other. And, you know, just like in the 13th century, you know, when you're, you know, the people who are going to get hit most are those in ghetto-like situations where everybody's transmitting to each other just by passing through the hallway or such. So um, it's particularly devastating for uh, people of color and economically challenged people. So the idea that uh, it was hitting non-white people was another dimension that you know, was not being nicely discussed, both in media and just among people in casual conversation. And then when it became clear that we have to shut our offices down, uh, we have to stop working, we have to stop going to school, we have to stop shopping, concerns about food supply, about medical supply, about treatments, you know, I mean, people in chemo or people who just need uh, uh, um, a daily medication that's only prescribed once a month. You know, how do you go to the pharmacy? All these things just hit within a two or three week period. And, you know, emotionally, you know, everyone deals with it in their own way. I, I live in an apartment building, you know, with a lot of, with uh, like 200, it's a massive building with 200 apartments. And at least two fights that I know of broke out in the hallways. I don't know what they were about, but I mean, you know, I mean, people were just sort of acting out and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, I mean, you know, in some respects we're living the, the world war two or depression era experience that our parents, grandparents and great grandparents went through for people from the ex Soviet States, you know, perhaps the time of perestroika uh, was, you know, around the late eighties, early nineties with food shortages and lines and such uh, might be comparable, but this for us, for you and me, this is our challenge, our crisis that, will define that is defining our generation in a significant way 
And we're not only, we're not in the middle of it, we're in the beginning of it, you know, and who knows what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting that you draw this parallel, Daryl, because I actually, um, uh, I grew up in the Soviet uh, Union during the perestroika, and that's this is exactly what it looks like. The only difference is in the Soviet Union, we never really had toilet paper in the first place. <laughs> no, we did <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it is. It is a pretty um, crazy situation. Definitely, when uh, surreal scenes when you go into the supermarket and you kind of see people swiping, uh, you know, like all the like the food and stuff. And and it's like you mentioned, yeah, like people get really tense on edge. People start to get into fights. And how else do you see it unfolding, unfolding right now? Because now it's, you know, it's already hit. It's been probably, what, a few weeks, really. Is, is it changing in any way? Is, is there any kind of calm that starts to come in at all? I mean, I, th I think it's aggravated because by our president, unfortunately. You know, I think people outside of the United States don't believe how grotesque and, and chaotic our leadership can be and uh, can cause people to feel floorless and not, you know, just put everyone at each other's throat. But that's pretty bad. You know, it's not like a right or left wing thing. It's like a dictator thing versus a peace loving people thing. We hear people say everyone should be safe, everyone should be kind. But the the reality is it, it's very difficult to do that when there are a significant portion of our population is saying that this virus is fake because they believe that our the things that our president says or that uh we have to open the country uh even though there are people still uh, vulnerable you know we don't have this under control here in the united states uh we still don't have the proper equipment for our healthcare workers uh we certainly don't have testing available so we don't know who has who doesn't and whether or not antibodies for those who have survived are an effective deterrent against the disease it's silly to ask people to feel sorry for people living in the United States, but if we didn't have the prehistory that we have had, I, I mean, I think people would indeed feel sorry for us, you know, for all 350 million of us, because we don't have, uh, we're really, we, we don't have guidance on a central level or on a level that can really be helpful or very the feeling is we're very much on our own and we see that in hoarding of food which other places do as well of course but uh, i mean even i mean i've got over 50 pounds of rice potatoes are on the floor you know i mean it's very much you know i've got uh kartoshka field here you know i mean it's like really wild <laughs> And, you know, I mean, it's fine. You know, I mean, we're not, I mean, we don't have enough here to deprive anyone else. It's mainly to just to feel secure that if something breaks down, we could get through a month or two and figure out what our next step would be. Even escaping from New York really isn't much of an option because people are so anti-New Yorker now because each and every one of us here, all 8 million of us, are considered carriers. So it's like if I leave to go to Massachusetts or Florida or California or anywhere else, Wyoming, you know, I mean, people will meet me at the border with, with sticks and knives to keep me out. 
and they've been doing that with cars with New York City license plate, New York State license license plates, because you know we are the. I mean, the truth is really that a lot of us here have the virus in one form or another, and can in fact transmit it. So the idea of leaving is only a very very wealthy person's option. So we're stuck here, you know. And New York doesn't have, you know, hardly anyone has a backyard. I mean, I could see through your window and see a green bush of some sort. You look out through my window and you'll see another building. I wish there were nice, positive, cheerful, or hopeful things to say, but it's way too early for hope. Although, obviously, there is, but hope, you know, who knows? I mean, that's another negative of... uh, the healthcare industry here is controlled very much through central government. I, I wish I had cheerful, wonderful, hopeful things to say, but I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to lie about anything either. I mean, you deserve the truth. Your audience does, and you know, truth may sort of shine a light on what needs to be fixed. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the and the truth is not always pretty. Not here, it isn't. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we wear plastic gloves because it's kind of ugly and dirty outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Daryl, can you talk a bit about what what you do? Um, I know you touched on it earlier, but can you talk about what you do around helping folks around cancer and how is that uh, impacted by the pandemic as well? So, Mailcare is an organization that I, I lead. It's a nonprofit, NGO-style nonprofit. Uh, it's a national organization. Uh, we help about sixty to seventy thousand people in the United States every year, uh, mostly men uh, with uh, diseases like prostate cancer, some testicular cancer, anal, but overwhelmingly, it's prostate cancer. Uh, and uh, caregivers and family members focus on underserved communities like African-American men who die at twice the rate from prostate cancer as white men, and nobody knows why. We uh, work uh, with the LGBT community. We're the organization, and in fact, I'm the clinician that uh, was first to develop LG, the field of LGBT psycho-oncology, which is the study of uh, the psychology of LGBT cancer survivors. And uh, we're the first advocacy organization for LGBT cancer survivors anywhere in the world uh, through uh, a side organization we started called the National LGBT Cancer Project. So all of that is what male care is. Uh, we also have a research program where we run one or two clinical trials a year. Right now we have one running that has not been affected by the pandemic. Uh, we have 404 men enrolled in that and they're still alive and well and continuing into their second year of the study. It's a prostate cancer study. Our work has, you know, like everyone else, has gone from, you know, outside to inside, uh, Zoom meetings and uh, Skype and go to WebEx and all the other brands uh, have been our best friends. Uh, all the support groups are doing uh, Zoom meetings. Uh, we'll be doing an annual conference online instead of in person next October. And uh, our anxi- I noticed our anxiety community, we have an online anxiety support group uh, with about 44,000 people which is in fact the largest anxiety support community in the world prior to this. We've had a significant jump in membership in the last month. Uh, I don't know, you know, how May will be, you know, maybe it'll drop down to the normal accrual rate, but uh, April, um, 
saw a huge uh, double-digit percentage in people jumping on and seeking support. You know, in one respect, we're an organization that's responsive uh, and nimble, and uh, thank goodness we're able to help large numbers of people in significant ways that will help them get on with their lives and help them uh, certainly help cancer patients be compliant with medications. One thing we are trying to work very powerfully in is the idea of uh, maintaining uh, information around supply uh, of uh, medications for cancer patients. You know, many of the oral medications have to go through doctors or pharmacies and uh we're trying to make sure that everyone associated with our with mail care gets their meds when they need it without extra cost uh and so far so good with that so actually that is a good thing we've been successful in helping people get their medications and get them when they need them and get them in an affordable way so the, i mean it's busy you know I'm working from home as uh, is pretty much the entire country for the most part, you know, who's able to work from home. You would think that would be a really sweet thing. And I'll tell you, it's, uh, you know, what was a 10 hour day is now a 12 to 14 hour day. That's an interesting thing too. It's a privilege and an honor to do that kind of work. Uh, So no complaints about it at all. But what I thought would be uh, an advantage in not having to commute really is taken up by the extraordinary excess work that we now have as a consequence of helping to serve people during a pandemic. Yeah, but it's fantastic work that you're doing, Daryl, and and good on you, because this is what's absolutely critical. And, you know, in some ways, I also do feel that, you know, with, with the experience of going through cancer, I kind of almost feel that I've I'm more prepared than most people because I've already been through isolation. I already had to be deal with being, you know, staying the hell away from people through washing my hands like crazy and trying to not to catch anything. Is this something that you're finding at all when you talk to people that maybe in some ways they are better prepared for this whole pandemic thing? Yes, but not the people that you would think. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, people who have gone through medical challenges know about washing hands and sort of staying away from people who are coughing and sneezing, et cetera, especially those with uh, compromised immune uh, systems. Outside of our cancer community, I notice homeless people seem to be doing quite well. They're, they're On one hand, they're challenged by you know, just being around people with more disease than most and the normal challenges of finding things to eat and finding places to sleep have been increased. But their wherewithal and the mood of people who have lived on the streets seems to be stronger than people who have lived in the middle and upper classes. And I think the obvious thing is, you know, when you've lived with adversity and challenge every day this is just another you know another challenge to deal with it's no different than a massive snowstorm hitting the city i mean i could come home and turn the radiator up and put on a sweater homeless people can't you know street people uh it's a challenge it's yet another thing to deal with yeah, I mean, to some respect, in some respects, uh, people who have gone through stuff before have a better wherewithal, more you know, integral understanding of how you know that I will get through this because they've already gone through something, as you have with your cancer, as many other cancer survivors have. 
But there's a different dimension to this. You know, I mean, lots of people are, at least in New York City, lots of people are dying. You know, I mean, we've had more people die in the last two months from uh, COVID-19 than in 20, than by murder over the last 20 years. You know, and New York City has never, until very recently, has had, you know, a horrible reputation, a well-earned horrible reputation as being a murder capital in the world. Uh, and that's no longer been true for, you know, about half a dozen years. But, I mean, imagine, you know, the, the stress of living, wondering, you know, is somebody going to shoot you? And this is 20 times worse condensed in a two-month period. So th there's some, th this is different. You know, I don't want to say it's worse or greater than, but it's certainly different in a profoundly negative way on all aspects of disease management and psychological wherewithal and just relationships of the way people relate to people. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you might say, you know, people who are married or partnered up or living with family may be better off than single people. Uh, you may say that younger people are better off than older people. You may say healthier people are better off than unhealthier people and such. But only by increments, if any of that's true. I think there's a universal um, darkness that uh, everyone's experiencing in massive quantities. And there's just no real way around that right now. I think it's crucial, though, that there are still, uh, of course, like, you know, um, support groups like your anxiety group over there, which you say, so this tremendous jump in membership, because it is definitely where people need to go. I mean, the only way we can try and deal with things is try to, I guess, connect with others and seek support and try to at least, uh, you know, connect with others who may be experiencing the same sorts of things, right? Because the, the fallout of this pandemic is, is, is uh, as you describe, is the mental health aspect, especially for the people who are most vulnerable, right? I can't imagine this occurring, how, bad, how much worse this would be 20 years ago you know, like prior to internet and, you know, people having laptops uh, at this scale. And yet we've gone through plagues and pandemics before internet. You know, in a way, there is a, a, an interesting aspect of this is the internet's first pandemic, you know. I mean, I imagine there have been others on smaller scales that, you know, are correctly called pandemic, but nothing like this. You know, and certainly massive numbers of people have died at, in a very short period of time. I mean, you could think to the uh, Christmas time tsunami from, uh, I guess, three or four years ago, where I think a quarter of a million people died from that. Uh, during that, uh, certainly war and famine have taken place where thousands of people have died within a short period of time. There's a difference here. You know, uh, that perhaps a negative aspect of this time of having internet and streaming news, that we're aware that people are challenged by this globally, and that it's not just an American disease or an Australian disease or Ukrainian disease. It's like a disease in Ghana and Yemen. It's a disease in the Maldives and, you know, in Guam. You know, it's, it's literally everywhere. 
you know, I mean, I think one of the few places on earth are Sakata Island off the coast of Yemen, where 50,000 people live, I think, or something. And a couple of smaller places, I think maybe the Faroe Islands haven't seen it yet or something. We even have to think like that. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a movie. You know, it's, it's way too real. You know, there's solidarity on a global way. But, you know, I mean, I think the bottom line is the very concrete issue that there really is a virus. Uh, it's communicable beyond measure or barely beyond measure. You know, it's, uh, there's no resolution around it yet, either in treatment or in prevention or in control. And we're all dealing with it. And, you know, the sad part will be that, you know, in two or three years from now, everyone will know somebody who succumbed to it. You know, it's our World War II or World War I. But the resilience of our medical community is astounding. You know, I mean, there certainly is hope in, in seeing these extraordinarily great people, you know, staying in hospitals for long hours and literally risking their lives just to speak to a patient, let alone help save their lives. So that's a good thing. I mean, I don't think it's impacted cancer treatment in any major way, at least around the prostate cancer, testicular cancer world, and male uh, breast cancer. We also work with that. But none of those cancers particularly require acute treatment, you know, except in rare cases. So I can't really speak in a broad way about how cancer survivorship or cancer diagnosis leading to treatment is being, you know, stymied or enhanced by. Uh, you know, COVID-19. I mean, obviously, people are getting teleconferenced by their doctors rather than seeing their doctors in person. We don't know what the long-term effect of that will be. Uh, hopefully, nil. Do you think there'll be impact down the line about people uh, going for a lot less screening these days? Because, uh, you know, it's, it's, you'd probably think twice about you know, going to get checked for, for cancer potentially because you might end up getting COVID. So do you think that there is impact on like this kind of, I guess, whole, let's call it life cycle, you know, that, that comes from screening to maybe even, you know, follow-ups and, and then clinical trials as well, like going into the future? Yeah. I mean, certainly with screening and testing, I mean, pretty much all that's on hold. Parts of the United States are legally able to do at-home testing, so there's probably that. By the way, our postal uh, workers, people who deliver packages, they are heroes too. I mean, I think we neglect speaking of you know frontline workers and food delivery and package delivery and mail delivery. I mean, they risk their lives too in transportation. You know, people keep public transportation. But the idea that clinical trials are impacted, I mean, we're running a clinical, mail care runs a clinical trial now that we just found a way to get people taken care of in alternative ways where they don't have to uh, necessarily go to the sites. I think the trials that are complaining are ones that don't want to spend the money on providing transportation that's safe for their uh, participants and subjects, and shame on them. We all voluntarily took a massive uh, cut in our annual rate uh, so we could afford to maintain our trial. I think there are a lot of doctors that are not doing that. 
And uh, again, shame on them. You know, this is a critical time and we all have to pitch in. Uh, the uh, idea about treatment, though, I mean, certainly there are going to be people that are going to lose their lives for lack of treatment, but there may be times where outside of COVID where lack of being able to afford treatment causes people to lose their lives. Uh, so um, I'm not really convinced that COVID is going to have a massive in, impact on that. I'm sure the impact were, were documented would show up in March and April. I think adjustments have been sufficient, at least in urban areas here in the United States, to uh, compensate for that. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, look, people are going to say that COVID caused me to have cancer, you know, because I didn't get treated sooner, you know, soon enough or something. That's inevitable, and we just won't know whether that's accurate or not. But if people believe it, then it's valid and an emotional impact. And, uh, you know, for somebody to feel like they missed out on a treatment opportunity, whether or not it was a real uh, uh, cause from COVID or not, doesn't matter if they're thinking that and they feel sad or challenged by it, you know, that's a consequence and that's a comorbidity of the pandemic and that'll suck. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they're like, it's, it's a crazy time when you, I guess you find out interesting things about yourself as well, right? Cause we've, we're facing through a lot of isolation. What about you? Like, what did you find out about yourself that you really didn't know about before? I could live with a lot less sleep. And I don't mean that funnily. I mean, it is funny. I mean, I don't feel as good with a, a good night's sleep, but I can be equally as productive without a good night's sleep. That's interesting. Uh, I've always been good about sleep. The last couple of months, not so good about it, but uh, it's not that critical an issue. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I've learned anything about myself. I'm too busy. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's not to sound pretentious and that kind of thing, but I mean, I really have been too busy to think about myself. You know, I mean, I take care of my, I mean, I'm up at like five in the morning. I exercise for an hour. You know, I'm lucky that I have like a, a kitchen and living room that sort of connect. So I actually walk a circle around them, you know, at a fast pace for an hour. You know, it sort of mimics you know, speed walking outside, you know, sometimes they'll go longer and do regular push-ups and sit-up kind of, you know, nothing innovative, just basic exercise stuff just to keep my muscles from, you know, cracking up on me. But nah, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I haven't lost any weight, which sucks. Uh, I, I mean, I could easily lose 20 pounds here and that hasn't happened. So I'm surprised by that. Uh, and I imagine a lot of people are. I mean, I don't think people are gaining or losing weight, which is a disappointment to a lot of people, I'm sure. Yeah, but I mean, I, really, I haven't had time to think about myself in any deep way. I mean, just, I mean, it's literally nonstop thinking about work. And, you know, it's not only just like a 14-hour day, it's literally seven days a week. Earlier, like there's a holiday on this coming Monday. I didn't know that until earlier today. Somebody else mentioned it uh, during a different uh, Zoom meeting. And it was like, it's, there's no, you know, I mean, there's no holidays here. There's nothing uh, to do until uh, maybe next January or February, except keep the, keep the lights on and uh, keep people safe. Just thinking that if you had the power to change things around right now, when it comes to 
you know, managing the pandemic and, and how all of that's unfolding. What would, what would you do? Uh, change in government, for sure. You know, I don't want to say any more around that. But, yeah, I mean, the, the find, I'd find a way for people to be nicer to each other. You know, I mean, it's appropriate for people to be stressed out. We're human. It's a stressful time. If you're not experiencing stress, then there's something wrong with you. You know, if you're not feeling depressed or angry or anxious, or you know, or if you're not experiencing negative emotions right now, then in fact, something's actually wrong with you. It's very human and appropriate to not feel altogether happy. But that doesn't mean you can't be kind to your neighbors. You know, it doesn't mean you can't be kind to yourself or to each other. And I don't see a lot of kindness. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I can't say I'm getting out into the world like I did in January or February. You know, so most of my observations are virtual, but I'm in touch with a lot of people every day because we have this massive network and a lot of insanely great volunteers keeping those support groups going here and stuff, you know, giving up of their time. But yeah, I mean, there are people who are just brutal with each other and that's not cool. I mean, gun sales in the United States are have increased massively. You might have predicted that or expect that, but not as massively as apparently it's happening. Bullet sales are through the roof. There was some interview show the other night, late at night, but it was uh, gun store owners talking, you know, even there, you know, right wing, you know, we have to protect our gun rights in the United States kind of pro-Trump kind of people. Even they are astonished with how many packs of packages of bullets people are buying. That says a lot. You know, it's not just food hoarding. It's not just toilet paper. It's armor. You know, it's weaponry. You know, it's bullets. My goodness, what are people expecting? You know, so there's not even a, kind, a mindset of kindness, you know, an aura of kindness. I wish I could magically reach out to everybody's brain and just go, you know, and get them to just put a smile on their face for a minute and say, you know, I love my neighbor or just ask somebody, how can I help you? You know, one of like my, like my big lesson in my life was in my early twenties. I, I heard a Jesuit priest ask, uh, listening to some other person in a car, I was getting a, car, a ride back from a wedding somewhere. And uh, he just turned around to her and said, how can I help you? And it was such a profound moment for me. You know, I mean, in that brief moment, I understood what kindness was and is and how we all have the, where, the ability to express it inside of everybody, you know, from the meanest person on up. So I wish everyone could just, you know, turn to someone else and say, how can I help you? You know, and if you did that, if people, everyone did that, you know, 7 billion people did that or 8 billion or whatever it is, I, th I think that could be a game changer for getting us through uh, this time period. What a beautiful distinction, Daryl, between happiness and kindness. Thank you for that. And thank you for doing this. And thank you so much for what you do in the world, because we need uh, more people like yourself just being kind, you know? So thank you for that. Thank you. 
Hey my friend, this is Joe Bakmutsky, host of the Simplify Cancer podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, because I know that this is a especially crazy time for all of us. And if you're struggling a little bit right now with the lockdown, with the COVID-19 pandemic, then I, I, I urge you to check out my 14-day lockdown challenge. How to stay sane, steady, and strong in the time of pandemic. You know, each day I'm sharing what I've really learned from cancer about dealing with isolation, with worry and fear. And each day we're going to tackle a different topic. So if that sounds interesting to you, then go to 14 day, that's one for 14 day lockdown challenge.com. Also, if you're a cancer patient who's going through you know, potential cancer treatment right now, then I urge you to go to simplifycancer.com and check out some of the free tools that I've created to kind of help you out along the way. If you go to simplifycancer.com to the tools section, you're going to find out the outcome map, which just shows you how to really work through specific worries, like in milestones, like, like a checkup, or maybe some specific symptoms that you've got, like an ache or a pain, and you gotta figure out what to do next. It's a really simple tool that can help you to really work through that. There's also online community guide, which is how to really find the top three online communities for most cancer. So you can really check in with people who've been through it before, like connect with them, ask questions. They're gonna be there for you because they know exactly what it's like, you know, what to expect from treatment and beyond. Also, I've got a PDF called your first oncologist visit checklist. And here I've got all the questions that you want to be asking your specialist. So you can just print it out and take it with you. There's room to make notes. And also make sure that you can kind of prompt the conversation and make sure that you really don't forget. The other thing I've got for you is the testicular cancer support kit. Oh, I've done a whole bunch of videos for you on the things that you can really, you know, find out about dealing with testicular cancer from the perspective of someone who's been through it. This is not medical advice. This is just from my personal experience of dealing with cancer. Things that questions that you might have about fertility, about having sex, all of that sort of stuff, like how does it feel, and guide you along the way and hopefully make your journey easier. So check that out as well. And speaking of my experience, you might also want to check out <laughs> Simplify Cancer, Man's Guide to Navigating the Everyday Reality of Cancer. This is the book that I wrote talking about the four main challenges that all of us guys must overcome when we're dealing with cancer. If you're interested in seeing what that's all about, go to simplifycancer.com. The links are pretty much <laughs> everywhere on the website and you know I'll tell you more about it. Other than that, thanks so much for tuning in. I'll talk to you next time.